Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur and an investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by my co-host for this season, Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures, and he's also the founder of The Seed Stage, which is a demo day with lots of funds without the accelerator. So throughout the season, Hector and I will be sitting down with some of the most successful founders, investors, and business operators to better understand the journey that has led them to where they are today. We are thrilled to be opening this season with Rachel Carroll, founder and CEO of private childcare provider Koru Kids. In this episode, we discover how Koru Kids came around from Rachel's own problem of not being able to find good quality childcare. Like any good entrepreneur, Rachel therefore decided that the only way to, to fix this was to build it herself. In this episode, Hector and I discover how she successfully managed the transition from consultant to entrepreneur, how she balances the use of technology in her business and why she kept believing in her vision despite early setbacks. A great way to kick things off for season two. So let's get started. So Rachel, please can you explain what you've done in your career so far and how you came to starting Koru Kids? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from New Zealand. I grew up in a really small sheep farming town at the very bottom of New Zealand, south coast of the South Island. And I went to my local university and then got an just incredible life-changing opportunity to come over to England and go to the University of Oxford, which was a complete dream. And uh, from there, I expected that I would go back to New Zealand. I thought I would work for the Foreign Service. Um, But at the back of my mind, I always also had it kind of in me that I wanted to do a startup. So I kind of had always was torn between these two different things. And uh, so I had a professional career, went, went to McKinsey, worked there for a while, and uh, gradually started specializing in healthcare. And I, everything was kind of going well. And then I had my first baby, I've got two kids. And when I had my first baby, I suddenly realized how difficult childcare was. And I had never really thought about it, honestly, I kind of just, it was one of these things that just happens along your life, you know, at some point, you have kids, and I assumed that there would be some system that made sense. And so far in my life, there always had been a system that made sense. You know, I existed in in a very stable, predictable world. You know, I grew up in the 90s. The world was very stable and predictable in the 90s. And, um, you know, you worked hard and kind of good things happened and it was all very linear and predictable. And then all of a sudden, when I had my first baby, it was like kind of running into a wall. Like all of a sudden, there didn't really seem to be a system. And people I talked to didn't really understand it. And the, the childcare that existed was very hard to find. It was exhausting. You had to patch it together. It really just didn't seem to actually meet people's needs at all. And, you know, just as one little example, um, children get about 13 weeks of holiday from school. And yet the parents only get generally about five weeks of holiday. And that those that's that very simple math just doesn't add up. Like even if the two parents spend all of their holiday not with each other, like they never go on holiday together, they still haven't covered it. I mean, that's that that's what I mean by like the system just totally didn't work. And lots of other examples too, you know, where I lived, the very cheapest form of childcare was twenty thousand pounds a year, which was a childminder. And um that comes out of your post-tax income. So that means that you have to pay, you have to be earning about 
40 to 50,000 pounds just to pay for your childcare before you've paid for anything else in your life. Like forget rent, mortgage, food, you know, everything else. And obviously most people in the UK don't earn that much. So how on earth does that work? So I started becoming aware of kind of all of these things. And, um, and I had in the back of my mind this, this idea that I wanted to do a startup and all of a sudden everything came together. And I thought, this is the problem that I want to devote my life to solving. This is going to be my, my life's work. And so that's when I decided to found Cory Kids. So is, is Cory Kids about making childcare cheaper? And I saw, I, I read something about how you can do some nanny sharing, or is it about making it more, um, more easier to find a nanny? It's about all of the problems. <laughs> so we, we have okay. a super ambitious vision for Cory Kids. And mm. one of the things that um, I found most difficult is because hardly anyone is working on solving childcare, you, and there are so many problems, you kind of have to rebuild a whole new system from scratch. So I came from healthcare and in healthcare, there are also many problems to solve, but there are so many people trying to solve them. You know, just about every day, there's an innovation con conference. You know, I knew so many investors who specialize in healthcare. There are, you know, thousands of startups working on solving these problems. So what you can do as a startup is you can just, you can be quite focused. You can say, I'm just going to work on this thing. The problem in childcare is no one is working on this stuff. There aren't conferences. There aren't specialist investors. There are hardly any startups. I mean, I know them all. There's a very small handful of them. And so if you actually want to make a better system that works for parents, you have to do everything. So that has been one part of the challenge of Cory Kids is we are completely from scratch rebuilding childcare infrastructure. And so we've had to rebuild, we've had to build many businesses at once. You know, we are a training business. We are a matching business. We recruit people who've never been nannies before and we train them and, and, we, and we turn them into nannies. We then um, give them a huge amount of, of, of support while they're in the job. We also are just in the process of launching our second service, and uh, that is going to make it more affordable. So um, we've made okay. the experience of getting a nanny really, really, really great. And you know the, the feedback we get is phenomenal from our customers. But at the end of the day, the, a nanny is a luxury product. It's always going to be a luxury product. There's no getting away mm -hmm. from that. And none of us at Cory Kids get out of bed just to like make life easier for rich people. That's not our mission at all. And so that's why we're so excited about the service that we're about to launch because it is um, helping people, it's helping people basically set up small businesses providing childcare in their homes. And that is gonna be much more affordable um, for everyday families, which is awesome. Are we getting a scoop on a new product? <laughs> <laughs> we kind of, we, we, we so it is launched in terms of the people who want to become a childminder. And yeah. um, we actually just got our Ofsted registration last Monday. So that's like our license to operate. You know, if the analogy would be if we were, if we were Monzo getting the banking license, this is like our banking license. So it was a really big moment on Monday. And we had everything ready to go. We had, you know, all of the, all of our ads written and we just like had to press go on it. So that is, um, it is launched for people who want to become one of these things. We haven't quite launched it to parents yet because it's quite a long tra training process and we have to um, get them to train. But um, 
we do have a growing waiting list. Um, so definitely parents can sign up to our wait list. Brilliant. How do you use technology to make um, all of this better and easier? Because it is, you know, it strikes me as a very human focused business, a lot of trust involved. Um, and, and also, you know, you, you want continuity of the same nanny and things like that. How do you use tech to make all of this so much better? At every stage. So um, we, we use tech to figure out who is going to make a really good nanny. And we do a ton of really interesting like, data analysis on that. Yeah, one of the cool things about because one of the cool things about what we've done is because we, na because we understand what happens when the nanny is in the job, we can use the data that we've got on real on the job performance and we can then analyze it and go all the way back to where did we get them from you know do, does a nanny who we find on the in from this source end up performing better than a nanny we find from this source and we can we can do all sorts of like really cool feedback basically because we're building yeah, a whole system so so yeah. that's an example so we but we go all the way from how do we find great people how do we onboard them really efficiently how do we support them at great scale? So a lot of what we think about is sort of augmenting humans. I mean, really augmenting humans is a theme of, 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 of a lot of our business. We're augmenting the nannies. So we're giving them, you know, prompts and nudges to make sure that they are just doing their best job that they could possibly do, the combination of them plus technology. For example, let's say you're, they're looking after a three-year-old and the three-year-old's um, feeling a bit sick today and needs a quiet chill day and they just run out of ideas for like fun things to do they can look up our activity bank and uh, and and get an idea just as a, just as one example so we augment we augment the nannies with tech but we also augment ourselves and our internal support with tech so um the one thing that nannies love about what we do is it we're immensely supportive and we have a really cool community that kind of helps them with ideas and that's all run with tech and then our matching uh, just in the same way that you know airbnb or whatever uh any any matching marketplace um uses algorithms and stuff we do that too so it, we use it all along our um journey and then also in the um in what we call post-match so when when nannies and families work together they um uh they use our app to just make the whole relationships completely seamless fantastic and you have you been tech from day one or did you first when you first started did you validate offline with kind of a manual process yeah definitely more the latter than the former <laughs> i think so I'm a non-technical founder and I, and I'm a sole founder. So I didn't, I didn't, I don't have a technical co-founder. And so I used no code. Um, we used like a lot of Google suite stuff and um, Airtable. We actually still use Airtable quite a lot. Love Airtable. <laughs> we have a somewhat love hate relationship. We went through a love relationship with Airtable we, we now are at the scale where we are seriously pushing the limits of what Airtable can do. So we're, what we're now doing is our engineers are, are building stuff to replace Airtable. But we went for a really long time with very little tech. Like I would say um, probably a good 18 months. And the reason was a lot of what we were building, um, we, we were achieving certain proof points. And they didn't need to be achieved through tech. So 
everyone everyone always believed you know investors believed that we could automate what we were doing the thing that we really needed to prove was thing like things like can we find enough people who want to work these hours who have enough experience who we can train you know and can we develop the content so we were really focusing on quite a lot of the non-tech um, proof points and I think looking back on it, that was the right thing to do because I think what I I think I've I've seen um, other startups come and go that invested a lot in their tech upfront um, and maybe didn't need to. Yeah, and you end up building the wrong thing and then having to rebuild and yeah, it, you know, it seems like a, it seems like a good approach that has clearly worked. <laughs> yeah. And so then did you raise money to build tech or was just raising money part of the, the growth that you were sort of needing to facilitate and moving forwards with? And maybe also add on to that is what sort of milestone did you hit for you to then think, okay, we're going to raise money and it became easier to raise money because you'd hit that milestone? Yeah, I think, um, so I've raised three rounds. The first round was 600,000. The second was three and a half million. And the third was 10 million. And the, definitely the first two of those rounds, um, we raised mostly, mostly to spend on um, non-tech. I think we started, we started really building out the product after the second raise. So the second raise was a bit of a, a, bit of a mixture. And since the third raise, we have been totally now focused on building building our product and tech, and most of it has actually gone into that. I think partly that partly we've been able to do that because um, now you know the business is in a really good place, and the marketing spend we've got is quite efficient and that kind of thing. Um, so I think um, you know I remember a time when it was really really hard to hire engineers, um, and I remember this one board interaction where this was after the three and a half million round and I, and I was like oh we try you know I think we had two engineers or something and um the, I remember one of my board members saying to me why are you not hiring more engineers and we were trying so hard but it was just a very hot market for engineers and uh they, they were kind of like well, but we gave like we gave you three and a half million like to build tech go and build some tech and it was it that was that was really hard and then we got over that hump and you know now we've got 12 engineers um who are wonderful we are actually hiring more senior engineers now um but uh but but it's it's against a much healthier base i think well, hopefully there are some great senior engineers listening that would be amazing that's <laughs> no, interesting one of the questions i really wanted to um ask because i think it questioned lots of um future founders probably ask themselves is sort of when they're embarking on a career is um, there are a number of routes you can, you can go down to become an entrepreneur and um, you know consulting is one that we see lots of entrepreneurs um, doing prior to being an entrepreneur do you think that consulting that you learned lots from consulting that has made you a better entrepreneur um, or would you advise people to um, skip the six years that you spent consulting and just dive straight in I learned so much from consulting. Like it was an incredible professional training. I think I, um, I sometimes thought about it as if it was an MBA, but rather than you having to pay a hundred thousand pounds or whatever it is to do an, an MBA, you instead get paid to do an MBA. So it was kind of like an yeah. apprentice version of an MBA. I think, um, yeah, I learned so much about my, like about leadership 
and management. I learned how to manage teams. I learned incredibly useful project management skills. I learned a lot of analytical skills, strategic stuff. And I use that all the time. I definitely had gaps. Like there are definitely things that consulting doesn't teach you. And some of the big ones are um, like hard-assed people management. I think you, you get... You get really good at managing small teams of highly motivated, incredibly skilled people, because that's what you do. But not everyone in life is highly motivated and incredibly skilled. And um, so, you know, it like or any difficult people problem at a, and when you're in, when you're in consulting, you sort of just hand off to HR and they deal with it. Whereas um, when you're a founder, you, you know, you can't do that. You have to deal with it yourself. So that is something I had to I had to learn. I think another one is sales and negotiation. You don't really learn that at all. And that is totally core to, um, to like the founder skill set. And then, you know, also I, I wasn't definitely not at the cutting edge of um, digital product thinking when I left McKinsey. So I definitely had to learn that a lot as well. Although I think to be fair, McKinsey has come a long way. I do, I do think though, I spent, as you said, I spent six years there. I don't think you need to spend six years <laughs> to achieve that. I, I, know, I know a lot of people who spent like two years and, uh, and then left. And I think out my, my and their skills are probably indistinguishable. I'm not sure I got that much, especially from the last like three years. Yeah, I'm sure yourself, you're doing yourself an injustice there. But um, <laughs> were, were you on any projects that were relevant to Coro Kitch? Because so I've seen a few or there are a few big businesses out there where the founder was on a project in an industry that was clearly broken and they thought let's go fix this I think that's really cool I mean the answer is no there was nothing I did like I say no one works on childcare. like it's just not an industry it's it's a it's a massive industry the market is huge and there are so many problems to be solved and yet you know whatever no one's in it and um but but I yeah I do, I do know people similarly who um, did that. I think one of the very best ways that you can do a startup, and this is not what I did, is to know an industry from the inside and then see some problem that an outsider would never would never um, notice, and then do a B two B play. Mm. And I think some of the most valuable, incredible businesses are built that way. They're the kind of thing that. Um, there's very little competition because there's just not that many people who notice it. Whereas some of the more consumer stuff, like, um, you know, right now it's very hot to do immediate delivery, whatever we call I forget what we're calling that, but you know, like, like deliver stuff to your door in 20 minutes kind of thing. That's the kind of idea that anyone could have, you know, there's no, there's, that's a very low barrier to entry idea because every, every, every human being has wanted something immediately. <laughs> like it's a universal human thing. Whereas, you know, a, a, a friend of mine, for example, um, founded Skimlinks, which is uh, solving an extremely specific um, problem in, I don't even know what it is. It's something to do with ad tech. It's like attribution of something, something. She's told me what it is and I can't remember because it's so specialist. Mm. And she had to be in that industry to notice that. You would never have had that idea. But it's, it's an incredible company and very, very valuable. That's brilliant. Yeah, and so Rachel, as a founder, you know, there's lots of highs and lows. Could you maybe tell us only stuff that you're comfortable, of course, but like 
the most joyous day you've had, the biggest high, and maybe also a, a sort of an, a, a moment where you had to show a lot of resilience because it was just felt like the world was caving in. Yeah, um, definitely. I think fundraising is always joyous when it goes your way, and we've been very lucky that it has. And I know this is unusual, but I do really enjoy my fundraising discussions. I know a lot of founders find it um, draining and negative and horrible. I find even, even when people are saying no, um, which they do all the time, that's just a natural part of fundraising for anyone. Um, but like, I've always seen it as kind of a way to develop my strategy. And uh, I find, especially with really smart investors, and there's a lot of really smart, really strategic investors, to have a great conversation with them and then, and then leave it with like having talked about your massive ambition and almost confessed the size of your ambition. Because I think there is, especially for Brits, maybe a bit for women as well, but, you know, there's, a, there's still a bit of like embarrassment about how big your vision is, you know, and to be able to say to someone like, I want to change the world and this is what I want to build and say something which is so big that it feels scary. And to have that person look at you and go, yeah, I think you could like, yes. Like, and take that seriously. I find that like very exhilarating. So, so when I'm speaking to founders, that is when you get the hair raising moments when the founders start speaking kind of philosophically about what the world is going to look like once they're, once they're done with it. And I just think that's so powerful. And you're, you're so right that, um, it's it's easy for founders to shy away from from doing that yeah um, just as people like selling themselves too much often and it's such an important part of fundraising i think that's right um i think the other thing that just makes me happy every day just about is the customer feedback that we get we have a customer feedback slack channel and all of our customer feedback goes in there and it's the most joyous channel just to go in and see how we're changing families lives and what they say about us and we're now at a point where our Trustpilot reviews and now Google reviews are so incredibly positive because we've worked so hard on this product. And, uh, and just to see those is, is very, very joyous. I think the sad moment, we early on, we had a data breach and it was um, based on our use of Typeform, um, which is a, a company that we use. And um, I remember when that so Typeform had a, had the breach. It wasn't our breach. It was Typeform's breach. And I remember Typeform told us about it, along with you know twenty thousand other businesses, on like Friday night at about five o'clock, like the worst possible time to be told that you that you know a, 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 a piece of software you you use has a data breach. And uh, anyway, so we had to respond to this. And I remember at the time thinking, oh well. The, you know, at least it's not our data breach, it's Typeform's data breach. And in my naivety, I thought our users would make a distinction. I thought they would be like, oh, well, you know, that's not Cory Kids's fault, that's Typeform's fault. And I learned from that, that users do not make a distinction. <laughs> Your suppliers, as far as they're concerned, are you. And um, so we, it was a horrible, probably week or two, of contacting customers individually, just trying to make it up to them in whatever way we could, you know, trying to win back their trust. Um, we did move away from Typeform. We, after that, invested a lot in cybersecurity. You know, it, it, 
it actually en it ended up with us being vastly stronger because we, you know, looked at every part of our business and thought, okay, like it, type form was obviously a weak link. Like, do we have any other weak links and kind of went through that process and that was great. But, you know, at the end of the day, childcare is about trust and anything that endangers that trust is always going to be the worst day ever. And what's, what's going through your mind at that point? Are you thinking, I mean, presumably there's some real doomsday thinking going on when something happens like that. Are you thinking, oh God, this is the end of the company? Or are you being quite matter of fact about it and thinking, okay, this is bad, but we can make it up? I guess, like I say, I was a bit naively optimistic because I, I thought, oh, this isn't us. This is, type, this is type form and everyone will understand that like type form, which is a very, you know, in my world was a very famous company yeah everyone's heard of it well that's what I thought yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that yes maybe if you work in software um you you have heard of Typeform but you know if you're a, a lawyer or a someone else like no not everyone has heard of Typeform actually and so yeah. you know the, the question for us was well why did you use this this disreputable company and um you know, the answer was, well, they're not disreputable. They're really famous, but they're not actually yeah. famous if you haven't heard of them. So all of this, all of this kind of swirled around in those two weeks. And I think, um, you know, I, what were my feelings in that moment? I never thought it would sink the company. I, I always, I knew we would be able to make it up to parents. And in the end, I mean, we lost very few people. I, I'm not, I can't even remember if we lost a single one. We, there may have been one or two that we lost over this, yeah. but um, it was more a case of just working through it diligently and contacting everyone. Uh, and, and, and the whole team really swung together. Like no matter what people's role was in the team, we were all, you know, on the phones, like reassuring people, just trying to, trying to do our best. Yeah. Um, so luckily, we haven't had one of those like, oh, my goodness, it's all going to crumble moments. Yeah. It's almost where your true colours come out as a company in a way, isn't it? Where something where, you know, shit hits the fan and you suddenly have an opportunity to really show your customers how much you value them. And so yeah. I suppose it's possible that it actually made the relationship stronger. That's true. I mean, COVID has also presented us with many of those moments, as you yeah. can imagine, our our families that we work with have gone through two lockdowns. They've gone through schools shutting, you know, they've gone through parents trying to homeschool. Like they've really gone through hell in the last year. And our, our key watchword has always just been, we will do whatever we would, we will help you in whatever way we possibly can. And again, my team was incredible. Like one of my favorite examples is we actually sort of invented a version of furlough before the government furlough scheme came out. So we, we didn't call it furlough, obviously, because we didn't have that word. We called it um, pause my arrangement, but it was basically a way that we could, we could get parents to continue paying their nannies some money while their nannies weren't coming to work because obviously our nannies, they, they need this money. And, yeah. But our parents equally were kind of going through stuff. So we came up with this kind of scheme. And my team just came up with that so quickly and got it out and organized, you know, within like a couple of days of lockdown. And then the government furlough scheme kind of came in a few weeks later and we were like, oh, that's the same thing. <laughs> it's a real testament to your, the, the confidence you've got that you will make it up to the parents. It's a sort of real testament to the values you've obviously got as a business. Have, have they been, 
there from day one or is it taking a bit of time to develop and how important do you think that is for a startup to kind of have you know very clear values that they know they can always draw back on in in the hardest of times yeah we're very big on values and um it they have been there since almost day one so when my very first employee came on board we um i remember it very clearly we left our office and we went with there was this little park and it was a, a warm day and we went to this little park and we sat down with a blank sheet of paper and, and we said okay let's define our values and we did that very early on like there were literally only two of us and we have kind of refreshed them um over time and then broadly we, we do everything in line with our values so it goes through our recruitment how we reward people how we recognize people our promotions you know our product it goes through absolutely everything and i think it has been really important we have a really really strong culture and um i think like defining values is a is is a core part of that in fact later on today um i'm going to spend an hour with new recruits to cory kids just talking about values and i do that every time anyone joins i spend an hour just explaining the values and how we live them and um encouraging them to be a bearer and sort of a be be a holder of those values and one of the things i always say is from this moment onwards you are a guardian of these values and if you see anyone departing from these values it's part of your job to call it out another thing that i i really wanted to ask you is what drives you actually building something that i see a real need for So when my previous job just before I founded Cory Kids I was the CEO of an online doctor service and that is a big market and it's very lucrative and it would have been the easiest thing in the world for me to leave that job and raise money to do an online doctor service and um and basically replicate the thing that I had been working on which I knew backwards I didn't found the earlier thing I just I just took over as CEO and I had no interest in doing that. I just have no interest in building something which doesn't fundamentally add to the world. So I think a huge motivation for me is that no one else is building this thing. You know, no one else is no one is solving this problem of working parents and especially it affects women and I also connect it to some of the really big problems in our society just to give you an an example i think that because childcare is so inadequate it means that parents have to absorb the brunt of it and most of that is absorbed by women and then that means that it's very hard for women to take on leadership positions in society and then we end up with the situation where you know in the uk we have a cabinet that is extremely male dominated and doesn't have women's views in it yeah. and i believe that that leads to much worse policies you know if you compare the way that some women leaders in the world have reacted to covid versus the way that some some of the male ones have i think there is a difference that is that that it would have been good if the uk had you know a bit more um a bit more understanding of risk uh, a, a different communication style you know i come from new zealand and um Jacinda who's the prime minister in New Zealand has led New Zealand through covid in a very different way mm. she's very empathetic she's very inclusive the core message has been be kind she has 
been very low risk. You know, it's very focused on health and education, families and old people are all her things. These are very kind of female things. So I think the world and the UK would be better if yeah. there were more, if there was more women, female leadership. Yeah. So I connect these big issues. I mean, it might seem crazy to connect what I'm doing every day to like COVID and, you know, whatever else, nuclear proliferation and, you know, arms deals and all these things. But I do connect these things. So, Rachel, when we get to the end of the interview, we like to play the sort of a, a game, which is a bit like the dinner party guest game. But it, we call it the business lunch guest game. So if you to have three people that you'd go for an hour, spend lunch with and just talk about work or it could be anything really, who would be on your list? Oh, man, this is the kind of thing that I would want to really think about. I'm going to give a wrong answer off the top of my head. I think Taylor Swift is an incredibly great business person. Um, I read an interview with her once where someone asked her what she would be doing if she wasn't a musician and her answer this might surprise you was she said that she would she said she would work in marketing that's like her favorite thing which kind of makes sense actually when you think about it I think about that all the time she is amazing at marketing so I would definitely have her I feel like I'm all I'm gonna have is pop stars because the next one that springs to mind is Beyonce I think the other one though if I don't choose another pop star um, I think I would have Jeff Bezos uh, and Elon Musk. I mean, they're kind of boringly predictable. They are just the best business people that there are in the world, like statistically. And uh, I, I, I would just love to ask them so many questions, both of them. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. I'm sure we could talk for hours and there's lots more that we'd love to ask you about. But I think we've had a really good insight into yourself and Coru Kids and where you're going. So thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much. If anyone listening is excited by the journey that we're on and would like to come and be part of it, we are um, hiring a lot at the moment. Senior engineers, uh, mid-level senior and junior marketers and uh, product designers, and then just operations, customer service. But it's all on our careers page. There's a lot of info there. Great. Great. Definitely get in touch. Great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you Rachel. very much, guys. Yeah, so good to chat. Have a good rest of your week. You too. Well, it was great talking to Rachel and a really interesting riding unicorn story. Another founder solving a big world issue. So we've got a new feature for season two, which is a thing we call Startup Spotlight. And each week we're going to shine a spotlight on an exciting up and coming company. This week, we are shining the spotlight on Apex Rides. Apex Rides is a British-designed connected fitness bike. Apex Rides is a fascinating company because they share this phenomenon around hardware-focused fitness and well-being apps, which is extremely high retention rates. So anyone that owns a fitness bike or a rowing a piece of equipment will know firsthand that they don't cancel their subscription because they've invested in the hardware. So the retention rates are much higher. Apex, as I said, is a British company, over 2 million in annual revenue and growing really quickly. So go and check them out. It's apexrides.com. So that's it for episode one of Riding Unicorns. Check us out next week. We're going to have Juliet at MMC Ventures. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next time. See ya.